Welcome back. You're watching Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, while a quarter of migrant hotels are finally going to be returned to actually being used for hoteling uh, in the spring, the Home Office has found yet another way to waste our money. They're spending 15 million quid on an abandoned prison whose owners bought it for just 6 million quid last year. I mean, that comes on top of some other news today uh, that we found the migrant hotel king, who happens to be called Graham King, and he's a guy uh, who's made something like 60 million quid out of the Home Office uh, because he's very smartly got into the housing illegal migrants business. Let's talk now to the director of the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity, uh, the one and only uh, former UKIP MEP, Mr Stephen Wolf. Stephen, how are you? I'm very well, Mike. How are you? Yeah, we're very, very good indeed here in the uh, the remade uh, Independent Republic, Mike Graham. It's bigger, it's better, uh, and it's more expensive, a bit like the Home Office. I mean, you and I are in the wrong business. I mean, your migration sort of study centre should be switched over and turned into some kind of hostel for migrants, and you'd be driving around in a Rolls Royce by Christmas. Oh, I certainly would. I mean, these are astonishing sums of money. I remember when I first started reporting on this about three years ago, how this particular company, Clear Homes, along with Mir Homes and Serco, had signed a four billion pound deal with the Home Office at that time. And everyone was saying this was an extraordinary number. As we now know, numbers are shot up. We've seen huge numbers crossing the channel. And as a consequence of that, these companies then started to make money on a daily rate in addition to those that they'd already contracted with. So I've said for a long time there is a, an immigration industry that consists of those housing the illegal migrants and the asylum seekers. There's those charities that are making a fortune from direct government funding from central office as well as those from local councils. There's law firms and lawyers who are making it on the applications that are undertaking it. And of course, the security firms and a whole variety of people. This is just an industry that many, many people never want to see the end of. Well, exactly right, because this is what I've often been saying as well, because everyone's making money, you know, uh, the, 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 <laughs> the migrant smugglers are making money, the migrants themselves are making money, the hoteliers are making money, the people putting people in hotels are making money, the people driving them to the hotels are making money, the only people getting stooped in this whole equation uh, are the good old taxpayers of the United Kingdom. Um, we've got, we've seen pictures already of this guy, uh, Mr King, rather well-named Graham King, former caravan park and disco tycoon. I mean, it beggars belief that he's baking so much money, but he's probably not the only one. And also, um, he's got a deal that lasts for another six years with the Home Office. So no matter who gets in next, no matter what policies they may want to have, they're still going to be paying out massive amounts of money to this guy. Oh, absolutely. And we made discoveries of recently of a hotelier buying hotels in Wales and other parts of the country that actually has an offshore investment fund that is actually owns the, the UK companies that own these hotels that are making applications to the local councils so that they can be used to house asylum applicants and illegal migrants. So there is plenty of money out there. And of course, whenever you get a company like that, there's lending as well. Banks will be lending to these organizations so that they can expand their hotel and property empire. They no doubt buy them on business mortgages, as it's a different to a residential mortgage or a short-term loan. So again, the bankers are making money out of this. And it's extraordinary after all this time that we don't have a full report from the government. There's no checks from the Home Affairs Select Committee that identifies all the money that's cost. And every time you ask them, 
They say it's too expensive for us. We can't provide you with the actual costs through freedom of information unless you pay us to do the research for you. Right. It's not too expensive, though, to spend eight million quid a day to, to put them in hotels. They just can't find a few thousand to actually find out where they all are. But we did a study this morning, uh, a survey right here on Talk TV uh, with Talk Today, asking people for their view on this idea that migrant hotels are going to be closed. Nobody's quite sure how this is going to work, so that the migrants can be moved into cheaper, apparently, hotels. Has your community suffered from having one in your area? Yes, 69%. Because, you know, the Tories have told us this morning through Jonathan Gullis that, oh, well, most of these hotels are in Tory areas. I don't know where most of these hotels are, but they seem to be pretty much everywhere. You know, every single... I got a, a, a note just last night that one of the big hotels in the middle of Birmingham, the Birmingham Hilton, uh, has now been made uh, unavailable, shall we say, for future bookings, which would suggest, like many places, uh, it's just going to be blocked booked by the Home Office. Well, initially, our, our, our research showed that where the hotels began was outside on coastal areas such as those in Lincolnshire. Uh, and, and then they started being taken in into big big cities, mm. places like uh, and around them, like Stockport, for example. And the reason for that is those areas were northern, they were cheaper, and they were much closer to lower middle class and working class areas and didn't impact those people. But now that we've had so many and so many hotels are full, they really started having to go into more expensive areas. I've even heard them talking about in Surrey and and in, in, in places like Winchester being analysed. And the costs were too much. And that's why the government started to panic. Panic on two fronts. Firstly, the cost would be extraordinary when you have to start taking out hotels in the very wealthy areas. And suddenly these people would actually see the impacts in their local communities, which would impact on the votes on what would, could be soft, soft conservative mm. seats. So as a consequence of that, they then tried to bring in Bibi and the military bases, the former military bases, to try and reduce them. But more importantly, Mike, more importantly than anything else, is I've seen the upsurge in those being granted asylum under the generalist discretionary route that the government has. And I think when our figures come out, the next figures come out just at the end of December, we'll see that Rishi Sunak has been trying to solve this problem, not by deporting those who are illegal, but actually granting asylum to almost everybody. Exactly right. And another story this morning in The Times, an incredible one, uh, which is close, close to home for me because <laughs> I've been very much looking at the, um, the site in Becks Hill that they're trying to use. It's a former uh, army uh, military uh, prison, I believe, that was bought by the United Arab Emirates and used as a training facility for one of their airlines uh, for, for many, many years. It was bought apparently last year by a group called Brockwell Group uh, from Bex Hill, uh, investors basically, who spent something like six million on it. They've now literally flipped it and sold it to the Home Office for 15 million. And the Home Office haven't even got it operational yet, but they've paid like more than twice what it was worth, basically less than a year later. And it seems incredible that they're so absolutely kind of spendthrift-like with our money. Oh, and, 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 and put it this way. I mean, I don't obviously know the finances of Brockwell, but generally most uh, commercial loans to investing groups like that only require investing groups to put in around 40% and 60% mm. is done by the lending institution. Right. So they probably wouldn't have even put in 6 million, just as you wouldn't put the full amount of your mortgage in on your house. Right. So the flip for them is going to be much more in terms of percentage terms. But what is really, really daft about this is the way that the government is paying over 100% here, 115, 120% on the price. Mm. Again, in a scenario when this could have been observed and, and monitored 
when they knew so many people were coming through. So they could have been able to purchase land like this at much cheaper right. rate. After all, it was their own land in the first place. Well, exactly right. And also, they've basically um, you know, got an awful lot of uh, campaigners down in that part of the world um, who are having meetings on a regular basis with the council. There's a very good chance that it will never house anybody. And then will be left, as, as the uh, proprietors, presumably, uh, of a former military prison camp that we've all paid for, they'll just sit there empty. Oh, ab absolutely, until the next person comes along who wants to build, uh, say, housing on it, and then the government will sell it to them at a cheaper rate, and then they'll build lots of housing because we need to expand upon the housing stock for people coming in because we've seen population rise by 5 million in the past 10 years, and we expect another 2 million in the next five years. So as we become an incredibly dense country, we're going to need to build housing. So watch the space, Mike. Maybe you'll be looking at that in a few years' time and saying that the government has sold this to a housing development company for less than the $15 million that they bought it. Well, I bet you can bet your bottom dollar that lots of people <laughs> will be looking at the King model. Uh, this is a guy who, at the turn of this century, was running a caravan park in Canvey Island, right? And when he lost his licence, he, he came up with a bright idea of using the building, uh, a former cinema, to house refugees instead. And that was the beginning uh, of what has now become this absolutely golden ticket that he's got, um, because he's got literally a £60 million guaranteed income over the course of the next six years. It's absolutely extraordinary. Just on that one site, but it, 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 it's, I understand it from the reports, he is the owner of uh, Clear Homes, which has that much bigger contract over a 10-year period with the government. But it just shows really how smart money, if you want to put, call it that way, is actually benefiting and profiting on illegal trafficking of, of people and the asylum process. And every time that people smugglers are making money, an estimate of 300 million this year of transporting people from France to the UK, there are people who are aiding and abetting, in my view, that, that offence by housing them over here, by helping them in illegal criminals, by the government failing to do so, and by uh, countries such as France enabling, not, not stopping this process. Every time we don't do anything, I think we're tangentially aiding and abetting the people smugglers. Now, that might be a controversial line for some people. They're saying we're providing a service. I fully expect accept that. But in reality, every time we do help people, we're actually aiding the people smugglers in their business. Yeah, absolutely right. Because as long as they know if they get here, they can stay, which is currently the state of affairs, uh, they're going to keep coming. There's no question about that. Meanwhile, let's uh, revisit another story that you and I have mentioned many times before. Shemima Begum uh, back in the news. Apparently, there's a court case going on at the moment uh, where uh, her lawyers are representing her and suggesting that she needs to have uh, another go at trying to come back to Britain uh, because she was the victim of trafficking. I mean, they pretty much tried everything to try and get her back. We were under the impression that Sajid Javid had ruled out her return. What's the situation as far as you are aware, Stephen? I, actually, I hadn't been following this, this particular case because like so many people, I thought that once the Home Secretary had gone through the full process and denied her, her passport and removed her citizenship that she wouldn't have any more rights, I can only assume that she's going through the European Court of Human Rights process once again. And this is an example of where uh, lawyers are able to utilise a system that is not the United Kingdom's, although we put it into law through our Human Rights Act, to be able to, to bring in people that we do not want, or rather the government does not want. There's clearly some that do, they're benefiting from this once again. Um, um, it all turns to the question of whether we should be part of the European Courts of Human Rights. And what I found fascinating, Mike, I don't know if you saw the story 
about Macron saying yes. he's going to deport asylum seekers. And even if they win at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, all he'll do is pay a fine. Yeah. And that, that's an interesting approach. Why isn't our government just doesn't well, utilise that exactly. approach for I mean, I've, the I've said this. Process. I've said this literally for, for, for as many weeks as, as we've all been arguing about whether Britain should leave the ECHR. I said mm. it's a much simpler equation than that. You don't need to leave the ECHR. You just need to ignore them like everybody else in Europe does, because everybody else in Europe does what they want. You know, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden and others have all deported uh, all sorts of people out of their country back to their home countries in North Africa or into the Middle East as well. You know, the French don't really adhere to any EU rules. They don't fancy doing it. And as you say, they'll just pay a fine. I'm sure we could do the same. We wouldn't become the pariah of the world, as everybody suggests. And it might actually convince people that the government means business when it says it wants to stop the boats. Because right now, the only thing that's stopping them is the weather. Oh, absolutely. And I would also guarantee you this, Mike. If the government was strong on removing people and deporting them, and irrespective of what the ECHR, there would be some smart business people who would start offering the planes to be able to take them away because they know that they would make some money from it. The very fact that there are no planes leaving and no businessmen making a profit from it is a realisation the government yet hasn't, isn't putting money into actually really removing individuals or have no intention to do so. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Final question, Stephen, on the, the, the crisis in the Middle East uh, between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians and Hamas and all of that going on. Um, obviously, it's all right if you're Egypt to say we don't want any Palestinian refugees. It's all right if you're Jordan to say we don't want any Palestinian refugees. But apparently it's not all right if you're Britain. No, I, and I agree with this, but we may differ slightly on this, uh, Mike. I, I do genuinely believe that the UN Refugee Convention was meant for circumstances where there was genuinely suffering and fleeing and torture. And when bombs are hitting uh, two and a half million people on the size of uh, the Isle of Wight, which isn't very far from where I live, you can see how condensed that is. And if I do not want to see children of any, any persuasion, religion, colour or creed, being blown up and killed. And I think that this is an opportunity where we could show leadership. Uh, but I do also believe fundamentally the whole world should be doing this. It's not just Britain. Well, it's not it our responsibility alone. Well, surely, Stephen, it should start with Egypt and, and Jordan, shouldn't it? The neighbouring countries. Oh, I, no, you know. I, abso I absolutely agree. And Egypt and Jordan do have very large Palestinian communities. But I think that this is a situation where every nation that is actually supporting Israel uh, should actually also be able to support those innocent individuals who are being hurt, killed and murdered from this. Uh, it's not an individual country's responsibility. This is an international responsibility and it's about being human. Yeah, but judging by the numbers of people marching on the streets of London to free Palestine, uh, it would seem as though there's already quite a few Palestinian refugees here already. Well, there is. A, look, if we look at the figures, when I analyse the number of applications, there is generally about three to three to four thousand every year from asylum applications from Palestine, not all uh, from Palestinians who say they're Palestinians. Again, just as we also noticed in the figures about Iran uh, and Iraq, many people who claim they're from those countries tend not to be from that, as we noticed with the recent individual that was charged uh, with uh, people smuggling uh, and making thousands from it, as you reported on your show last week. So you are always going to get people who are generally not from that country, but we do actually already take in quite a lot as well. Mm.
Stephen, good to talk to you. Stephen Wolfe there. Uh, thank okay. you very much indeed. He's the director for the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. Uh, well, the economic prosperity is certainly going in one direction. If you're running a hotel or a chain of hotels or you're running a coach company uh, or you're a people trafficker, you are making a plenty of money. Thank you very much indeed. There's absolutely no problem with your economic prosperity. Uh, we've now found the king uh, of the migrant business and his name is actually King. Incredible. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now uh, it's time for this. Now, some people think that profligacy is a good thing. I'm not one of them. Uh, obviously, it's not a good thing if you're in private business because if you spend too much money, uh, more money than you take in, then I'm afraid your business won't last very long. This, of course, does not apply to the public sector, uh, an area which I try to look at uh, with as neutral an eye as possible, but it's very difficult. The Home Office is wasting money hand over fist, and the big problem is it's our money. We've just learned today, thanks to a great article in The Times, that the Home Office have bought a, a disused military prison down in Bexhill in Sussex, not a million miles away uh, from where I take my dog at the weekends for a walk on the beach. The good thing about this disused prison is that it's disused. They want to put migrants in it, and the local people don't want that to happen. But the most ridiculous thing about this story is that it was bought only last year by a group of investors for six million. They've somehow flipped it uh, into more than twice its value. Because why? They've found some idiots to buy it. And who were the idiots? The Home Office. And whose money they're using? Ours. So I'd like to say this. Who are the real idiots in this picture? I think it might be us. Can we not do something about this profligacy and this nonsense? That is my taking the mic. Now, you can't say fairer than that. A man that knows a thing or two uh, about looking after the pennies in order to save the pounds, Mr Alex Salmon, the former First Minister of Scotland. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much it's for... It's a pleasure uh, to be here, mate, and a pleasure to see you back. It's great to be back, and it's great to be back in this wonderful new studio. Uh, we're going to talk about Rishi Sunak. Mm. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. How has he survived one year in office, I suppose, is the first question. Um, about seven and a half times longer he's been in than Liz Truss. Yes, he should get a long service medal. <laughs> a long service medal for Tory <laughs> Prime Minister. My achievement. I've yes. lasted a year. He's only lasted a year, really, though, um, because nobody's actually questioned what he's been doing. But when you get to the end of the year and you look at his five pledges and you go, well, none of those have really actually changed. In fact, if they have changed, they've changed for the worse. He hasn't stopped the boats. He hasn't brought the waiting list down to the NHS. Inflation, mm, some of it's come down a bit, but nothing really to do with him. Growth, I don't think we've got any. I can't remember what the fifth one well, was. Well, exactly. I was just about to congratulate you on being the one person in the country <laughs> who could remember what the five pledges were. It's too, too many. Yeah. People can only remember three things. Yes. Limit the short-term memory. Yeah. So even getting the number of pledges wrong, I mean, I, you know, I think Sunak would have been better to concentrate on one pledge, whatever it might be, because I think that's about his, uh, yeah. about his limit. Well, I think it would be good, wouldn't it, if you could say, right, let's do one at a time. You know, once we've got the one uh, occupied and, and ticked off, then we can have another one. You know, it's a bit like when you're having to deal with somebody who's got various problems, whether they be alcoholic problems or drug problems. You go, one step at a time, it's a 12-step programme. Yeah, you know, tomorrow, try and do that. And then the next day, we'll try something else. You know, your, your destiny is to be a political advisor in Downing Street with Ooh. a dying Conservative they can't administration. Afford me. <laughs> no, they can't afford me. I think <laughs> if I got the call, it would be yet another uh, no from me. 
Well, I mean, see, the, the reason that Rishi Sunak is still in office is that the Tories know they can't change Prime Minister yet again. Right. You know, even if they want to, and they probably want to by now. I mean, you know, they say that some people look like Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak doesn't even look like a politician. No. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a guy who doesn't have empathy mm. even for millionaires. Yeah. This is a guy who's so rich that millionaires are a step below him. It and is people difficult. sense it. Some people have said recently, though, particularly after he went to Israel, that he looks better on the world stage than he does um, at home. And that's sometimes a thing, certainly for American presidents, you know, because American presidents, as, as you'll know from your history, um, is, is, is something that, you know, whenever they've got domestic troubles, they go and start a well, war somewhere. Me, you know, uh, or you, they go and start flying around the world with the State Department and, and look as if they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, because you've got a war zone because it's safer than, than being at home in a yeah. in a political zone. But that doesn't win you elections. Mm. I mean, look, if I was to say one reason why Rishi Sunak's going down to catastrophic defeat over the next year, which is his last, because he'll go right to the end, there'll be about a year left, so he'll be two years in office, there's about 4 million people who are going to move from fixed-term mortgages mm. at low rates to 8% mortgages yeah. at flexible rates. Right. And each and every one of these families, a lot of whom will be natural Tory voters, are going to say, look, this guy in Downing Street, I can't afford my bills. Mm. Each one of these families will come under the most severe financial pressure to join many, many other mm. millions of families who are already in that position. Yeah. There is absolutely no way he can turn this around. But will they not also have a sort of a reverse ferret effect on that? Because I've also heard this theory purported by people, which is that if you are badly off um, and the Tories are in power, what you won't do is get a different government, which might make you even worse off. Because what I've heard is if people are actually a bit more comfortable, they might say, do you know what, we're fed up with the Tories, we'll kick them out. But if they're actually in the, in the deep doo-doo financially, they won't. Well, that's the Tories' ill-deserved reputation for economic competence. Mm. But you know, there's a story in, the, I think it's The Guardian today, so I'll treat it with some suspicion. Oh, I haven't right? caught up with that yet. Uh, but it's the National Institute of Economic and Social Research mm. pointing out uh, that because they didn't insure against higher interest rates, and remember, they've got a governor of the Bank of England who is pushing up interest yeah. rates month by month, right. you know, 13, 14 times, but they didn't insure against it, the Treasury. And as a result, they've just lost 11,000 million pounds, which is even more mm. than Gordon Brown lost uh, by selling gold at rock bottom prices. Now, it's that sort of thing that dents the Tories' reputation for economic competence, mm. which is already badly dented by, you know, having a governor of the Bank of England who doesn't even have an economics degree. Well, so the, and who also doesn't even know how much money he earns. He can't even remember. Well, he can't, he can't remember his own salary. Which it's not a great start. I mean, with the work, I mean, of course, he was actually in the middle of a peroration saying that the workers should tighten their belts and yep. not demand high... Pre <laughs> and then he got asked, what's your salary? Yeah. Oh, I can't remember. Right. Something near half a million quid. <laughs> well, it's a lot sure. more than that, Mike. People take a few bonuses <laughs> yeah, and all yeah. of that. Let's talk about Scotland, because um, since I've properly spoken to you, I think, um, the Labour Party has won a seat mm -hmm. up there, the, the, the SNP previously held. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on that? Is it likely that, that, that Starmer and Labour and, um, and the new uh, Anasawa leader up there can actually win a bunch of seats for Labour? Interesting enough, the swing in Rutherglen was very similar to the swing against the sitting party in Scotland, the SNP, mm. than the swing against the Tories mm. in the English by-elections. And also the turnout was right. dismal as well. Oh, yeah. so, so you've basically got two things happening. There's a huge swing against the incumbent party, north and south of the border. Mm. And actually, if you look at the turnout figures, people aren't really that uh, mobilised no. uh, at the press. They're pretty moment. disenchanted, aren't they? So, you know, Stammer's going to, going to win on current form, 
uh, without doing very much. Now, that should be an opportunity to recover ground mm. because, you know, not, I mean, Gustavo looks like he couldn't bust a paper bag in right. terms of political I mean, impact. I'm old enough to remember the days when um, the Labour Party had 48 or so seats in Scotland. Well, and I'm old enough to remember when opposition leaders like Harold Wilson or, or even Tony Blair, and for all sorts of reasons, particularly invasion of Iraq, I usually cross myself when I remember when I say Tony Blair's name. Yeah. But as an opposition leader, he was uh, he was impressive. Yeah. Uh, but Stammer's not in that quality, not in that character. Yeah. So the opposition, I mean, the opportunity should be there. The trouble for the SNP at the present moment, I mean, Hamza Yusuf, uh, you know, he's starting to tear up a lot of his predecessor, Nicola Sturgeon's mad policies. Yeah. So he's torn up daft fishing policies, he's torn up daft bottle schemes, he's he's gone back to a council tax freeze, a policy borrowed from, uh, from me, which obviously helps people in economic crisis. Mm. But one of the things that he doesn't do, he does this you know, one by one and by stealth. Mm. And what he should be doing, in my opinion, is making a big song and dance. And what's the this. point of doing it otherwise? Well, you should be saying, I'm tearing it. It's a new agenda yeah. for a new leader. I'm going to make a stir. But his big weakness, and of course, Alipa's big opportunity, is that for the first time, probably in its history, certainly for the first time in a quarter of a century, the SNP has no independent strategy. No. Well, and they announced that with great sort of fanfare, as if that was a good thing. You know, they had their, their conference, and suddenly they said, right. Uh, we're not going to bother for, uh, with some, without having any kind of strategy for independence. We're well, just going to continue on uh, assuming that we'll get there someday. Well, what, what they've said is, uh, you know, it's like the old chant, what do we want independence, when do we want it now? What the SNP are now saying is, what do we want a, a democratic effect? Yes. And when do we want it? Well, no time soon. No. It's not the sort of thing that takes people to the barricades. It's not exactly Braveheart, is it? No, and particularly in a, an atmosphere where people are losing hope, losing faith, as you can see from the turnout at the back. You'll never take my democratic arrangement. Well, it's... <laughs> <laughs> so you, you maybe could be an advisor to Hamza Yusuf as well as... well as He could do with some help. They don't pay as much. Uh, uh, no, no, I know, I've been there. Um, but, I mean, this is the problem in, in, in Scotland for Hamza Yusuf. I mean, he still is kind of perceived as um, the man that was a sort of puppet put in charge before anything happened to Nicola Sturgeon. I see that she's now passed her driving test. I know you were asked about this the other day. Well done, Nicola. This means presumably that she'll no longer be a backseat driver and she'll actually sit in the front. I was surprised to see the picture that was put out as a publicity shot that they should have surely put her in a motorhome. Well, it is going to lead to a whole new generation of jokes on what she's going to be driving. But nonetheless, <laughs> let's fair fair. Congratulations on passing her driving test. Yeah. Well done, Nicola. Um, is she on probation then for a year or something like that? Well, you know... You can't have anybody the same like, age in the car with it. Whatever... Kind of thing. Hum, so the hum, husband will be OK. Whatever Hamza now thinks of Nicola, <laughs> it would be very much in his interest to try and carve out his own identity as mm. a political leader. And instead of tearing up a, a range of daft ideas, daft policies, like self-identification, to, to, you know, by stealth or, or trying to quietly bury them in the, in the background, mm. he, he should be flamboyantly saying, you know, I'm a, a new First Minister with a new agenda. The past right. is the past, the future is me. That's what he should be right. doing. But he, he's not doing well, that. He's tearing them up one by one. I would count you as one have a legacy that they can look back on. I mean, you can look back on the referendum, um, albeit that you didn't win it, but you got to the point well, I was, where you I was, had one. I, I was preferring to look back and winning an overall majority in a proportional well, parliament. you could have done that. But I think, <laughs> no, but I mean, for people outside of Scotland, say, they would look at you, Alex Salmon, as the man who, who got to the polls uh, an actual question on whether in, independence yeah. for Scotland was the way well, forward. And, and, you know, properly, that is a, a decent legacy. But for Hamza Yusuf, 
What is his legacy even going to look like? Well, I tell you what, you know, anger I was going to use the word, but, you know, what... Uh, what frustrates people like myself and others who spent 25 years replacing the Labour Party as the dominant force in Scottish politics. You know, when, when I left office, although we'd been beaten in the referendum, mm. we had an overwhelming tide towards the SNP. The mm. Labour Party were wiped out yeah. in Scotland. And I, I thought it was just a matter of time. I, you know, I thought effectively the game's over. It's mm. only a question of when independence, not if. Yeah. So it's deeply frustrating for, for people of of my generation who went through that process over a because it did take 25 years to replace the Labour Party in Scotland, to see them being handed back control with no apparent effort whatsoever. It is deeply, mm. deeply frustrating and incidentally a very bad thing for Scotland because the last thing that Scotland needs is the dead hand of the Labour Party back in charge. Well, uh, you would say that, but I mean others would disagree. I would say that. Uh, you would. Um, <laughs> But of course, let's talk about your other business that you're an expert in, and that is the banking business, because you were in that business for a very long time mm. uh, before you decided to, to go the other way and become a politician. Um, bankers' Out bonuses, a banker's bonuses, <coughs> getting a lot of people exercised today. I'm in the minority. Yeah, you're here, the friend of the bankers. We know that. Well, I'm defend. No, I'm not defending the bankers. What I'm defending is the free relatives. market. I don't. I don't happen to believe that the banks should have been bailed out. I think that was a mistake at the beginning of back in 2008, 2009. Some countries sent them to jail. Uh, well, exactly right. I mean, if you were that, again, profligate is a word I'm using in place of the Home Office. If you were that profligate, and you know what they were doing. You know, NatWest overseas, over in America, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, were parceling up all these investments, cutting them in, in so many different pieces that uh, it was an absolute disaster waiting to happen. I remember being over in America and talking to my sister about it, who was in the banking business, and she was telling me about how a bus driver in Maryland was suddenly being given a $400,000 um, mortgage to buy a massive house. Uh, in a very nice part uh, of, of, of the outskirts of Washington, D.C. And as soon, of course, as the house prices fell, that was the end of that. Mm. And so they shouldn't have bailed them out. They should have let them die. Similarly, I don't think it's for the EU or any other government to interfere in what a private organisation, albeit publicly owned uh, by shareholders, pays its employees. Well, the, the argument, Mike, is that they get bonuses by taking unreasonable risks. And the idea is to try and stop them being incentivized to, to bring the financial system crashing down. But can I, you know, I worked in the <clears throat> Edinburgh financial sector in the 1980s. Uh, I worked in the Royal Bank of Scotland. Now, the, the Royal Bank was conservative inclined. Mm. They, they weren't particularly right. radical people. But, but they were decent people. Mm. Uh, they, they, were, they cared about their customers. Yeah. They worried about the, the, right. the, the situation of customers. And, you know, to me, the, the banking industry has, as well, we can see, I mean, as you know, I, I, unlike you, I've got little time for, for Mr Farage. But if you look at these uh, comments yeah. from the Nat West... Unbelievable. ...about what are their customers. Yeah. Now, you would never, ever... I've had that no. in the Royal Bank of Scotland in the 1980s. No. I mean, the, the customer... And that is a much bigger problem in some ways than, than the, bon the bonus problem, because I disagree with you to say that they're encouraged to take greater and greater risks. They're well, not really encouraged, well, but they're encouraged to be rewarded for a okay. deal that works well. Right, well, go back to the big bang, as it was called. Yeah. And, the, and you've got a situation where if you were a kind of... Uh, a common sense, normal clearing banker who cared about your customers and tried to keep everything correct and, mm. and, and had you know went through your 
whole career with total probity, uh, you got so much money. If you were a, a fly-by-night merchant banker, you got a lot, more, a lot more. And if you had colourful braces in the city, you yep. got a lot more than that. I'm, I mean, I knew a, many there, people like that. There is an argument, Mike, that if you incentivise people to take unreasonable risks, then don't be surprised if they start to erode the yeah, foundations of the financial system. But that's precisely why, if they take a risk and they get exposed and they get done then therefore uh, you let them go to the wall. You don't save them. You don't bail them out. You don't go, oh, I see. now so, we've got some so money for you. So your argument, on the one hand, you'd let them make pots of money, but on the other hand, you'd send them to jail when, when they were caught with their fingers on the well, send them to jail if they broke the law, certainly. Yeah. And I would also, like Nick Leeson did, and I would also make sure that the system was not uh, capable of being brought down. I mean, I remember the Bearings Bank problem. I remember the uh, uh, the uh, BCCI problems. I remember the, the Indian banking crisis. I was well involved in that. Another story for another time. Um, but the fact that, uh, that, that British merchant banks were lending money without any kind of collateral to, uh, to dodgy banks... Uh, who, were, who were doing all sorts of things in, in faraway places. Yeah, sure, but... They, that was not... Should never have been capable of bringing the country but, banking but was a down, but it was. Another difference was... The Johnson Matthews... The, the financial was. authorities, the, the Bank of England, were widely respected. You know, when they could bring the banks together mm. and find a method out of the country lending crisis. Yeah. Uh, when the, there wasn't a financial service authority. I mean, you know, how, how did the financial system survive for so long mm. without the financial services authority? Or, or, or it's, course, you, you take people who fail in the financial services authority and you make them governor of the Bank of England well, that's and then you're surprised we're out of time uh, I'm going to have to put a cap on your speaking engagement here because uh, Sir Alex Hammond I'm going to call you that thank you very much indeed uh, we'll see you soon we haven't got time to talk about what we're doing soon but we will uh, we're doing a stage show yet again uh, so popular were we at the Edinburgh Festival uh, that we're going to come back and do it in London but coming up after the break cap on bankers bonuses is officially scrapped you just heard what I think uh, will this attract talent or just Feed Green. Uh, we're coming back after this. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Oh, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up in this hour, the government spent £15 million of your money on an abandoned prison site to house migrants that developers paid only £6 million for the year before. Uh, don't bank on it. We've been talking about bankers' bonuses. The cap will be scrapped next week, but some critics are calling it an obscene decision. You know what I think. Harry and Meghan, of course, have now become the latest victims of a Family Guy sketch over earning millions from Netflix, but no one knows what. Harry! Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're here with you all the way through until one o'clock and we're going to be talking about bankers' bonuses. You heard uh, my conversation with Alex Salmon there. He used to work in the banking business. We want you to get in touch with us because the show is all about you as well. The socials, of course, are all at Talk TV. And on the phones, you can call us on 0344-499-1000. Now let's get the latest headlines, though, from Emily Rose Adams. Good morning. Hospitals in Gaza may have to start cancelling life-saving treatments and the UN says its help will end tonight if fuel runs out. Israel's stopping supplies getting in but is accusing Hamas of stockpiling what's there. Meanwhile, Israel's ambassador to the UN is calling for the organization's secretary-general to resign for condemning Israel's response to the Hamas attack. Jerusalem's diplomats have accused Antonio Guterres of making excuses for terrorists. 
A former British Army officer, Colonel Richard Kemp, explains Israel's strategy against Hamas so far. Israel has been hammering Hamas from the skies above Gaza for two weeks, more than two weeks now. And the idea is to, to, is to degrade the Hamas military organization as far as possible before then sending forces in on the ground. Meanwhile, the Labour leader will meet Muslim MPs today as tensions rise over the party's stance on the conflict in Israel and Gaza. It comes after an Islamic centre Sakir Starmer visited on Sunday said his comments supporting Israel's right to cut off energy and water to Gaza gravely misrepresented them. In other news now, councillors are warning uh, that government's plans to end contracts with 50 migrant hotels may shift the responsibility to local authorities. The local government association says if that does happen, it may even mean that councils will only end up having to use the same hotels that ministers ended with the relationships with. Well, we've spoken to people in Standish in Wigan, which is home to two hotels housing migrants, about their views on the government ending the contracts. I think that Standish is probably not the right place for them. We're a little bit too rural and um, I think ever the general consensus in Standish will be it's a, it's a good decision. Don't get me wrong, I don't mind asylum seekers, but there has been a lot of problems going on around it. Not saying that it's them, it's just what you generally hear, like people moaning about and taking over everywhere. If the boot was on the other foot, they'd be screaming the odds the other way, you know, it's just, it isn't fair, you know, and nobody would like to be in that position. A Category 5 hurricane, which meteorologists are calling potentially catastrophic, has hit Mexico. Hurricane Otis touched down near Acapulco just after midnight local time, with winds reaching 165 miles per hour. The Mexican president has urged people to move to emergency shelters and away from rivers and streams. Prosecutors in the United States claim an off-duty pilot who allegedly tried to shut down a plane's engine during a flight had told officers after his arrest that he tried magic mushrooms for the first time. Joseph Emerson, an Alaska Airlines pilot, was arrested in Oregon on Sunday night and charged with 83 state counts of attempted murder and a single count of endangering an aircraft. And an all-British astronaut team could get the chance to blast into space for the first time ever thanks to a new deal between the UK and a US space company. An American company that organises visits to the International Space Station is developing the plan for the mission to orbit. That's the latest. Now time for a look at today's weather with Nazanin Gaffer. Times Radio sponsors Talk TV Weather. Hello. Rain on and off today and some of that rain could cause some flooding issues. First thing this morning, we've had warnings across parts of the south for the heavy rain, particularly around central and southern areas. That does ease away this afternoon. Mist and fog across parts of the north and east of England and Wales also clearing. So brighter skies and dry conditions for England and Wales, but northern England seeing showery rain. Northern Ireland mostly fine. Uh, the east of Scotland, however, will continue with patchy outbreaks of rain through this afternoon. And then by the end of the day, it becomes cloudier from the south 
southwest with spells of rain that will be heavy moving northeastwards through the night across towards parts of Northern Ireland and Wales. Some heavy downpours are to be expected. Patchy outbreaks for the rest of England. And across Scotland, we continue with showery rain in the east moving up towards the northeast. So Shetland and Orkney also seeing some spells of rain and blustery conditions there. Cool night in some rural spots of Scotland, otherwise generally looking mild. Mist and fog again tomorrow morning, clearing early on. And then into the afternoon, we continue with spells of rain moving up towards northern and eastern parts of England. Behind that, sunny spells developing for England and Wales, but plenty of heavy showers are likely too. Times Radio sponsors Talk TV Weather. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You were listening to myself and Alex Salmond having a very spirited conversation about bankers' bonuses. And now, uh, for the latest news from the City of London, uh, bankers are apparently popping bottles of Bollinger uh, if they've managed to come into work today because the cap on their bonus is apparently going to be scrapped from the end of the month. I actually think that it should be scrapped. And I'm now joined by former Chief Executive of the British Bankers Association, Angela Knight. We'll find out what she makes of it. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. Welcome to the new, improved uh, Independent Republic of Mike Graham, uh, our new home, which we're very happy with. Um, I think bankers' bonuses is not the purview of anybody other than the banks that employ the bankers, is it? No, you're, you're right there. Yeah. That is where it sits. Yeah. It sits with the, banker, with the bank itself. It sits yeah. with the board of the bank yeah. and their remuneration committee and they've got to have the ability to pay when they want to pay and take away yeah. as well. Right. What, what is called clawback, malice and clawback mm. these days is a set of requirements which says to the board of the bank, well, if they didn't do very well, even though it may be a, a previous year, you can get that money back right. off them. And does that actually happen? Yes, it does. It yeah. has started to happen now. Right. It, it didn't a few years ago, right. but now it really does. I wish we does. could do that in the public sector, because I was saying to Jeremy Carl this <laughs> morning, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's all on. very well when you look at people like chief executives of councils who get paid sort of half a million quid a year, and they always say, oh, well, we have to employ the best people. We have to pay commensurately with the private sector. But they never really seem to have any performance criteria whether they've done the job well or not. And that's a very valid point, mm. because it's, you've got to get your performance criteria right. Yeah pay when it meets that performance and not when it doesn't. Right. And as I say, being able to sort of retrospectively say, hang on, we're not going to pay you that right. is a very good thing. And what it does as far as the individual and the bank is concerned is when you have a good year, you can pay it. Mm. And when you haven't had a good year, you don't pay it. Yes. Whereas if it mostly goes into fixed salary, as you say, it gets paid regardless. Mm. The problem with bankers' bonuses is that it became totemic and still to this day is totemic. Yeah. That, you know, the sort of view on the street is it's always a banker's fault. They're paid too much right. and they shouldn't have a bonus. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that has happened about, you know, the narrative behind making this change is it hasn't come from a politician. It hasn't come from a lobbying group. Right. It's actually the regulators themselves right. who said, look, what it was intended to do, that cap, it hasn't done it. Mm. We are out of step globally, and we are a global financial centre, whatever one mm. might like to say, this is still the biggest or one of the biggest global financial centres and arguably the most international. So actually, the huge mobility that goes on, people coming here for three, mm. four years, going elsewhere and vice versa, means that we do need to be in step on pay and quite a few other things right. as well. So are you saying that, that Britain, uh, being outside mm. of the bankers' bonus at the moment, saying that bankers can't have 
Well, bankers do have a cap. Well, that's not what everybody else is doing. No, that's right. I mean, a lot of people signed up to it and not many people implemented it. Right. There's a whole load of things. Not many people. I think we're the only country who ring-fenced the retail bank right. saying that's the way to protect it. It wasn't. Right. But, you know, this out-of-stepness is tricky. Because the banking sector's changed irrevocably, hasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, my, my sister worked in the sort of Wall Street city-type companies for, mm. for, for decades, and so I know a bit about it just from talking to her and seeing the yeah. kind of things that, that used to happen. Um, and, and, you know, some might say, thank God they don't happen anymore. Um, but it seems to be that they were a lot more successful uh, back in, the, in, in those days. Banks seem to have now become these kind of, uh, uh, sort of cathedrals to the woke, uh, where they'd rather tell you what your carbon footprint is uh, than lend you some money at a reasonable rate. Well, you have to, tell, you have to do all this business about carbon footprint. There's do you? Uh, yes. There's diverse, Why? Uh, there is regulatory you know, framework that sits around, and part of that regulatory yeah. framework includes uh, diversity, inclusion, and it also includes something about... So is this government-inspired or is it regulatory-inspired? Mixture. Mixture. It comes... Well, there, there is, as you know, there's a governmental push. And actually, I shouldn't really say that. There's a big political push. Yeah. Because we, like many other countries, are signed up to uh, a goal, which is all about net zero. Right. Uh, and then, which is a load of old cobblers, in my view. Yes, it might be. But I'm not entirely sure that I'm going to agree with you on well, that. Well, we can disagree what, on many things. But what I would say is that that is fine to right. sign up to a target... Mm. But if you're going to do that, you've got to have a clear and sensible yeah. plan. Well, and part of that plan has got to be allowing the banking sector absolutely. to finance not just new energy, yeah. but also existing energy. So you're going to be lights mm. on in here. No, listen, I mean, my my view of all of this is that I'm more than happy to buy an electric car. I'm more than happy to get a heat pump. I'm more than happy to say that if we get to net zero, we will save the planet. If anybody can tell me that that will definitely help. But nobody can. Because every time I ask them, they haven't got an answer. And also, if it was cheaper, if it was better, if it was more efficient, and if it made the business of business actually more efficient, then I'd be all for it. But it gets in the way. I mean, look at um, the, the, the chair of NatWest, who just recently departed these shores, yeah. um, Dame Allison. You know, she's going to be remembered for putting in sustainable carpets yes. in every NatWest branch. What she's also going to be remembered for uh, is screwing up the bank's policies on making money and being obsessed with diversity. So what I, what I, what I, where I do agree with you and where I don't is this. First of all, I do agree with you that the going beyond what is reasonable, yeah. forget it. Right. I'm not in favour of that. I'm not in favour of doing nothing right. either. I'm, 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 I'm a pragmatist. Mm. I just sit in the middle, which sounds, makes yeah. me terribly boring. And, and that is, you know, do we need to be a little bit more... Uh, aware of our, the world we live in, yeah. environmentally aware, sustainably aware. Of course we do. Do we need to make sure that we have women, we have uh, others in jobs, we, you know, we look at ethnicity in a proper way? So some of those real barriers that were there when I was uh, young and just mm. starting out in, in, in the commercial world are no longer there. But what we shouldn't do is go over the top. Exactly. And we have a tendency to go over the top. We are operating, banking industry, financial services industry, operates within a, a framework set by government, by regulators, and we have several regulators, mm. including uh, audit regulators, yeah. if you like. I mean, to be honest... Which puts a set of, set of requirements. However, right. let me finish my sentence. Sorry, go on. You are so right that the what the business of a bank is, is to lend you, me, and the and business world... Uh, the right amount of money at the right, right. price for a decent yes. period of time. And also, Full stop, and also don't take our savings and lend them to people who can't afford to pay you back. Because oh. that's the other problem that they got involved in. But also, 
Let's have a Bank of England uh, set up so that they know when the interest rates are going to need to be adjusted, rather than just sitting there, blat- you know, blamelessly staring off into space and making sure they've got gender-neutral toilets on the seventh floor, you know, when they didn't see any of it coming. And then, in fact, at one point, um, Bailey came out and said, that the, the head of the governors of the Bank of England, uh, he couldn't do anything about inflation, which is literally his job. One of the, one of the things I always feel not to be is the person in the spotlight yeah. <laughs> having the responsibility of dealing with situations when they really get tricky. Yeah. Now, I totally agree that stepping in early is better than sitting back yeah. and waiting. However, by uh, tackling inflation by interest rates, which is a time-honoured method, mm. it's not necessarily the only method, but it's a time-honoured method, which we do here and is done in central banks around the world, its effect, if it is going to be effective, it has to make people not want to spend, not be able to spend, their disposable income goes down and stuff gets more expensive. And the population really, really does not like that. Mm. It fails to see why it should feel the adverse Mm. consequences of actions that have to be taken for not uh, the problem of today, but well, the problem of today, but the problem of the years ahead. And that, the fact that we have done what we've done in this country, which is supported wages as well as being uh, harsh on interest rates. Mm. What is happening here is that we will have interest rates higher for longer and actually people's pay is caught up. The net effect, therefore, is not quite zero, but it is not as strong as it should be. Mm. The country that took really strong action was the US because they don't, they, to say they ignore their citizens is unfair, but they don't have anything like the same sort of welfare state no. or mentality about no. protecting people. And that is a do. big problem. But Europe is in the same problem yeah. as us. Of course, state. because yeah. they follow the same dopey policy that comes out of the EU. But that's another story. Let's talk about Rishi Sunak because he's been yeah. in power now for a year, which is hard to believe, to be honest. I mean, yeah. somebody told me that this week. I was like, really? Does it seem like a year? Um, what's your assessment of well, his financial stewarding of the economy. I mean, it it feels like both longer than a year and shorter than Mm. a year. What it doesn't feel like is a year. No. Um, What I think he's done is he has solved carefully, worked his way carefully through some of the really tricky problems and, and good on him. He's a clear problem solver. He comes with that sort of written on his back as uh, in all his life from school onwards. And I think he's shown it. If it, You know, it's been an improvement for the whole Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland trade, all that sort of messy bit. He's been brave in saying what so many people have known for a long time, and that is um, the cost of HS2 is out of control. Yeah. And it's, you know, and out of control, sort of written glorious technicolours. Yeah. You don't have to... And he's going to throw a few hundred million at buses. Uh, well, if you live in the north of England, what you're concerned about is your local transport, both local trains, yeah, local it's not buses, just the north of England. operating much better. Yeah, my and kids live in the south of England, and they can't get more than one bus a day. To yeah, go to well, college. there you go, there you go. You know, you, you've got you've got another answer. So there's a lot of those things that I think he's done extremely well. He sits with a really, really difficult financial problem, though, and that is throughout the pandemic, of course, this country borrowed a lot of money yeah. to pay its people to stay at home, mm. fine, in order... That was also a good, that was a good idea of his to pay for all that. Well, well, it was Some collective idea. Don't think. He, he, was, he was the Chancellor at the time. If you recall, the pressure at the time was not, oh, don't do anything, just stay at home, don't get paid money. The pressure at the time was to hold the economy as best you can. Mm. So what that has done is borrowed a lot of money added to our debt. The reality of today is that just as if we were people, we have got to pay back 
our debt. Yeah, but and he didn't ask us if we wanted to go into debt. That's the problem that a lot of people have. But a lot if he of people had, think you know, it's very unfair. If, if he had asked us at the time, do you want to be paid to stay at home, what do you think the answer would have been? Overwhelmingly, yes. Not necessarily. However, uh, I don't agree a, with you. This is for another time. And, and then there's this sort of little mantra which says, oh, just tax the rich and it'll be all right. And you no, know, I don't believe that either. We ha- you're quite right not to believe it. They're taxed up. That's another reason already. why bankers' bonuses so, should be resolved and set, and set because uh, they the more they get paid, the more tax they pay. They pay a lot of tax yeah. on them. But you know, as I do, that the reality of having proper discussion in the public domain almost doesn't take place. Yeah, you know, it does on led- this show. It's led by Twitter. It does on, it does this, on show. this show. Because oh, I say I the things to... that people don't like saying. And sometimes people disagree, which is great. Angela, yeah. we must have you back, but we've got to run. I've got to, I've got to get to, on to other matters. But I'm going to ask you one quick one. Okay. Um, marks out of 10, then, for Rishi's first year. Give him eight. Eight? Wow. Yes. That is high. Absolutely. That is really high. I'm shocked. Absolutely shocked. Angela, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank Coming you. up, uh, this year does mark the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords, a landmark effort for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. But yet, as current events in Gaza have made clear, any sign of calm does not seem to be on the horizon. Here to discuss this further with me is columnist for Unheard, Thomas Farsi. Good morning, Thomas. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much indeed for for joining us. This is a story um, which obviously has taken a tragic turn, but it's been going on really for decades. Um, Where do you see it at the moment in terms of that kind of time frame? If you look along since the days of Yasser Arafat, since the days of um, conversations going on at the White House, since the days of, um, you know, a two-state solution, you know, are we further along or have we sort of fallen off a cliff? No, I think we've never been uh, further, uh, you know, from the chance of reaching a lasting peace than than we've ever been. Um, but what I try to do in, I, I just written an article, you know, where I go over the history of that of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, and in fact, uh, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions uh, around that process. Uh, I, I think a lot of people think that uh, we often where you know we were very close to reaching a deal uh, that would have given Palestine a its own state, and uh, I think a lot of people also think that due to the intransigence of the Palestinians, uh, you know that that deal was never actually um, uh, reached, and so I think a lot of people uh, see Israel as having offered. Uh, Israel, uh, I mean, Palestine, its own state, and the Palestinians are refusing that. Um, and in fact, when you look at the actual uh, at the actual deals that were proposed, if you look at the actual negotiations, what you see is that, in fact, there was a good deal of intransigence on both sides, um, uh, including the Israeli side, because if you look at, for example, the, I mean, the first time that Israel actually proposed to um, the Palestinians their own state was only in 2000. So I think that that already says a lot. So until 2000, even though the Palestinians, uh, you know, and the Palestine Liberation Organization led by Arafat had accepted the existence of the state of Israel, you know, way back in the 80s and had in fact, you know, was ready to accept a two-state solution, essentially going back to uh, the pre-1967 borders as far back as the 80s. It wasn't until the Camp David summit in 2000 that Israel actually proposed um, giving Palestine its own state. Uh, So this was a big step forward. But when you look at the details of the proposal, what you see is that, in fact, what that state amounted to was a degree of self-administration over Gaza and over parts of the West Bank, not even all the West Bank, parts of the West Bank, Uh, you know, because there are 
you know, hundreds of uh, Israeli settlements, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers that live in the West Bank, uh, which would not have been removed under that agreement. So what you have is a, you know, a West Bank, a Palestinian West Bank that looks a bit like a Swiss cheese. Mm. Uh, so kind of enclaves in some cases surrounded by um, Israeli um, settlements and the Gaza Strip. And of course, the two territories are separated, uh, not to mention the fact that the external borders uh, would have been controlled by Israel. Of course, much of the security would have been controlled by Israel. Uh, Gazan uh, airspace waters uh, would have been controlled by Israel. So, you know, it wasn't it, it really wasn't something uh, that anyone would consider, you know, amounting to you know actual independence, to an actual uh, uh, state. Uh, so it's really no wonder that that um, uh, offer was ultimately rejected by the by the Palestinians. But at the same time, I think it would be also wrong to simply blame the Israeli government because if you look at the poll, what the polls said in Israel back in the late nineties and early two thousands, they thought that the government was already offering too much to the Palestinians. And so what you have is essentially an existential. Uh, you know, a, 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 a disagreement over what the Palestinians should uh, should have. Uh, what was too little for the Palestinians at the time was considered to be too much by most Israelis. Um, and so it's no wonder that the two sides really did not come to an agreement and couldn't find any middle ground in the end. But I think it's important to realize that, uh, you know, this was also because the offer on the table was actually wasn't this, uh, uh, you know, great deal that a lot of people uh, probably uh, think it was. And so, um, but I mean, and the really tragic part is that if these disagreements were that big uh, 20 years ago, when the domestic situation uh, in both the Palestinian territories and in Israel was, uh much less polarized than it is uh, today. Uh, that means that, of course, the chance that any chance of reaching a you know, sensible agreement today uh, is 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 even further away. I mean, not only because of what is clearly what is happening in Gaza, of course, which in itself will seed uh, will will, uh, will will sow the seeds of future violence, but because extremists in both camps have become more powerful than ever. We have an ultra-nationalist government in Israel, which has made openly genocidal statements concerning the fate of the people in Gaza, concerning the fate of the Palestinians. Netanyahu, in September, went to the UN and showed a map of Israel where the Palestinian territories didn't even exist anymore. And he presented that as his vision of the new, of what he called the new Middle East. And so clearly you have you know, Netanyahu himself and factions within the Israeli government who that, that clearly aim at essentially ethnically cleansing uh, what they consider to be, uh, you know, uh, Israel um, of the Palestinians. And I think when a lot of people look at what is happening in Gaza today, and they state they they clearly see that it's not an anti-terrorist operation aimed at wiping out Hamas. It's a terrorist operation aimed at causing as much uh, uh, death and destruction in Gaza that Israel can get away with, with, I think, the quite clear aim of um, uh, you know, expelling 
as many Gazans from the Gaza Strip mm. that Israel can, uh, again, get away with, which won't be all the Gazans. But I think that, you know, they are hoping to expel a good number of, of Gazans. And so it's pretty clear, you know, that well, this, the thing, doesn't, Thomas. this doesn't Thomas, end well yeah, in any way. But let me, let me just interrupt you, Thomas, for a second. <laughs> the point yeah. about the, the problem, surely, is that it's an intractable problem. Because if you've got Netanyahu on the one hand saying that he wants an Israeli state to not include um, a place where Palestinians call home, if you like, there are already Palestinians who live in Israel. Um, and work in Israel, and, and, and there are plenty of, of people who are not necessarily uh, of the Jewish faith who, who live in Israel. I presume he sees that as the future, whereby there would still be Palestinians living in Israel, they just wouldn't have um, a Palestinian homeland, if you, if you might want to call it that. But on the other hand, you've got the Palestinians, regardless of Hamas, um, many of whom would like to see the destruction of Israel backed by Iran, backed by uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. So I don't really see any way out of this at all. I just don't think there is in any way, shape or form um, a solution at all. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I think when it comes to Hamas, uh, I think it's, it's important to uh, make a difference between the Hamas charter and clearly the Hamas charter is genocidal. It yeah. does call for the you know, death or the expulsion of all uh, uh, Jews from what they consider to be Palestinian land. But at the same time, it would be, I think, naive uh, to uh, deny the fact that, you know, politically speaking, Hamas has also shown a great degree of flexibility over the years, whether that was announcing ceasefires or even uh, being uh, willing to accept a two-state solution as far back as in 2004. So, so that's I think off that's the table now. Isn't, take that two, isn't, the two, isn't the two-state solution now off the table? Absolutely. I mean, but the point is that it really what we the, the, the really dramatic part of all this is that when you look at the actual proposals and at the actual situation on the ground, you wonder if there was ever a chance for an actual two-state solution. Uh, you know, if you look at what the West Bank has been since the mid-90s, again, as I said, the Swiss cheese of uh, Israel, uh, of, of Palestinian enclaves and, uh, and, and Israeli settlements, you know, even back then, it was almost impossible to conceive a geographically coherent um, two-state solution encompassing, you know, most of the uh, most of the West Bank, and if, that's one of the reasons why that agreement didn't really um, come to uh, come into being. Of course, now for political reasons, it's even harder to uh, imagine. You know, the settlements are much more than they were 20 years ago. There's way more settlers than there were 20 uh, than there were 20 years ago. But at the same, so a two-state solution at the moment does seem as inconceivable yeah. as ever it but does. at the same time kind of one state solution that you were pointing at earlier uh that's really not what netanyahu has in mind because let's not forget that uh you know that the, for is israel conceives itself understandably as a jewish state yeah. which has to maintain Thomas, its gotta, jewish stop, character sorry, and a majority of jews so they can't stop thomas sorry i must, majority I, must of I must stop you we've got to yeah. move on i'm sorry we're out of time thank you very much indeed i think that's a pretty good summation of what uh, is the problem here uh, in the middle east that nobody can really find a solution nobody can really agree on anything nobody can really understand what it is that hate has done to that particular region of the world. It really is quite an extraordinary state of affairs. But coming up uh, next, we're going to be talking about 50 migrant hotels finally being shut down and being reopened as hotels again because they're going to move the migrants out. We're going to hear how the people of Wigan feel about the ones that are running around in their area.
Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Home Office has committed what appears to be some white-collar crime after apparently forking out a whopping £15 million, that's £15 million, on an abandoned prison site that developers had previously bought for £6 million. The North Eye site in Bexhill-on-Sea was previously used as a prison but is now set to be turned into what's loosely called accommodation uh, for up to 1,200 asylum seekers and maybe more. Uh, it comes as news that uh, no-fly zones are going to be enforced across prisons in England and Wales to crack down on gangs using drones to smuggle drugs, phones and weapons in that drive criminality behind bars. Um, we all know the prison system is overcrowded. We all know uh, it's in a hell of a state. Let's talk to David Spencer, the head of Crime and Justice at the Policy Exchange. Uh, let's kick off, first of all, David, very good afternoon to you, uh, with this incredible story uh, from Bexhill. I mean, we know the Home Office is kind of profligate, as I like to say, with public money, uh, but they appear to have bought themselves a complete dud here because I actually know exactly where this place is. I've been to look at it because it's in uh, an area where, uh, not far from where my family lives, right? Um, and it looks as though it's a former military prison, um, which is in a complete state of disrepair. It was owned previously by uh, a company from the UAE. They used it to train some of their airline workers, right? You're just seeing a picture of it there behind some bars. It sits at the end of a sort of cul-de-sac full of family homes, full of gardens, which obviously are filled with children playing. There's trampolines, there's kids' toys. It's a very quiet part of, of Sussex. It's not far from Bexhill Town itself. Um, but the people they bought it from bought it last year for £6 million, and they've now flipped it to the Home Office for £15 million, which is pretty good business for them, but pretty bad business for us. Good afternoon, Mike. Yeah, I mean, the whole story is pretty remarkable, uh, particularly in the context of uh, the announcements last week and this week uh, about our prisons being uh, filled to bursting, as you've said. You know, the, uh, the announcements by the Justice Secretary last week, um, some big changes. So someone's done very well out of this deal, I think it's fair to say. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. But the trouble is, of course, as I've said earlier on this show today, they may have now bought the property, but whether or not they'll ever get to use it is another matter because, you know, we speak to campaigners on a regular basis down there uh, who are called No to North Eye, which is the name of the site itself. Um, and they're getting some quite decent feedback from local people who don't want it to be used as a place that holds asylum seekers, but also the local council uh, I've had several meetings with them as well. And there's a lot of unease generally about moving, you know, what would be upwards of possibly 2,000 migrants into this place because they wouldn't be under lock and key. They'd be free to come and go. As I say, it's a very quiet uh, part of the world and they may never actually get permission to use it. Yeah, and I confess to not knowing the site as well as you clearly do, Mike, but uh, but it looks like a wreck. I mean, let's be honest, it is. there's going to yeah, be it is. Uh, quite a lot of quite a lot of work that needs to be done to get it ready for, for anyone to go in there. So um, quite when that's going to happen, uh, looking at the pictures that uh, that you're showing now is, uh, is, is fairly incredible. So, um, so yes, it seems like the Home Office spent a lot of money. Uh, they're going to have to spend quite a bit more money, I suspect, to get it ready for human habitation. That's before we even start to think about uh, what local people and the, uh, the council think about. Right. And I don't know whether you know what the process is that goes on inside government departments, but, I mean, it seems to me that, what, from what I know, that the Home Office was sort of negotiating with the previous owners about how to use the property, uh, how they were going to lease it from them, and it appears that at some point or other that decision was made. Actually, don't worry about us leasing it from you, we'll just buy it off you. Um, I wonder how easy that process is made, and I wonder who makes those decisions. I mean, would it have gone as high up as the minister? Would it have gone to Suella Bravman, uh, the Home Secretary? I, so I don't know the answer to that 
directly as to where the sign-off would happen. I think what we can say with some certainty is that the commercial uh, and procurement processes that government go through are, are fairly Byzantine, you know, pretty difficult to, to grapple with at times and do not often, let's let's be, uh, be polite and say, do not often lead to the best outcomes for the no. public. Uh, there are some real problems with the way that government procurement is done and this this may well be another example of it. Yeah, and I presume this would also spill over into uh, the planning for more prison capacity as well, because we saw this week there was a meeting uh, at the House of Commons, I think it was a uh, Justice Committee meeting, about prison capacity. Uh, we know, uh, as you've told us many times, that the prison capacity in this country is woefully inadequate. There's not enough room, basically. The prisons we do have are overcrowded. We're told there's new prisons being built, but it's another case of not in my backyard. Um, but you'd have to worry, wouldn't you, that if they're this profligate with money to take over a, 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 an existing rundown prison, how the hell much are they spending on building new ones? Well, this is, the, this is absolutely right. And the length of time it's taking to bring new prisons online is fairly ridiculous. And you're right. Um, obviously, the uh, number of prison places uh, is very, very close to uh, being outweighed by the number of prisoners that we need to put behind bars. Uh, you know, there's been all sorts of proposals, uh, a reduction in short sentences, something around foreign offender deportation, so getting foreign offenders in the system mm. deported to other countries. Now, these are the sorts of things that it's inevitable the government needs to look at, but the reality is there are some people that need to spend significant periods of time behind bars if we're to protect the public. And, mm. you know, I think everyone would agree when it comes to murders, murderers and rapists uh, that they spend their significant part of their time uh, behind bars. But the people that I'm most concerned about and which Policy Exchange has done quite a bit of research on are the prolific offenders. So these people that go in and, you know, they get sort of hundreds of convictions. So in our research, we've seen there was someone in Gateshead who had 343 previous convictions and then got another nine for theft and they were given a community order by the judge. That seems incredible to mm. me. And are the judges guided, do you think, too much by their knowledge that there isn't much room in the prison system? So they take a view that perhaps the best thing is not to send them to prison because they know they won't get there anyway. Well, it's more than just the judges um, in that position. The you know, sentencing judges have received specific guidance around this. Um, so, you know, there have been court cases and guidance recently which have told judges to give consideration to the prison places crisis when they are sentencing. So um, the position we're in at the moment is... is is very significant and very, very challenging around this. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, what's the status, as, well, as far as you know, David, of, of new prisons actually being built? Because we hear it's a bit like that promise to build 40 new hospitals. You know, it turns out that not only were they not actually physically being built from scratch, but some of them uh, were being sort of rebuilt or added onto. What's the actual position with new prisons? Are they underway? Are they under construction? Are they soon to be finished? So uh, if I remember rightly, there are two that will be coming online fairly soon. Um, but the plan was actually for many more. I think it was probably six to come online originally. Um, but we are some, some distance from that. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the likelihood of a significant increase in the number of prison places anytime soon is pretty slim. 
Yeah, I think so. What about this other development where it's been announced that they're going to bring in no-fly zones? Um, I know this used to be a problem in a sort of a lower-tech world because uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about Sockton Prison up in Scotland uh, when I worked up there outside of Edinburgh where people would often throw over the fence uh, literally a dead pigeon stuffed with cocaine or something, you know, and they'd pick it up on the other side and away they would go. Um, apparently now the preferred delivery system is a drone and an awful lot of prisons where people are wandering around in an exercise yard um, uh, get stuff just dropped over, whether it be a phone, whether it be drugs, whether it be something else that's uh, some kind of contraband, cigarettes, I don't know. Um, you'd have to say, and I'm not just saying this because I've seen the Shawshank Redemption, um, Presumably some of the prison um, officers must be turning a blind eye because if you see a drone dropping something into an exercise yard, you'd like to think that somebody in, in a, a sort of position of authority would see it. Yeah, I mean, some of the numbers on this are pretty remarkable. Uh, a, the prison inspectorate said that at uh, HMP Lindholm, they announced this week, they said that as a result of their inspection, they found that 21%, so a fifth of all the prisoners, had got a drug addiction while they were in prison. Right. So they weren't on drugs before, but since they've come into prison, a fifth of them have got a drug addiction. So, you know, that is pretty remarkable. I think the no-fly zone with drones is the right thing to do. Um, that's pretty obvious. The reality is, and this is, uh, you know, this is the tough message, is that if you want to genuinely stamp down on drugs getting into prison is that you need to search every member of staff that's going into the prison. Mm. Um, now, quite how the Prison Officers Association, the union would take to that, I'm not sure. Uh, I think we can guess. Uh, but the reality is, if you're going to stop drugs getting into prison, yes, the drones is one way, but you've got to search every staff member and every visitor going in and out of the prison. Yeah, that's I, think, the I think that's absolutely right, because I don't see how it's possible to smuggle things into a prison without, um, I'm not suggesting that all prison officers are bent by any stretch of the imagination, but without the help of some members of the staff, I just don't think it can be done. No, I think you're right. There needs to be a significant step change in the way that people who enter the prison, whether that is staff or whether that is visitors, um, both sides, you know, that needs a significant step change in terms of the searching mm. regime that goes on inside prisons. Yeah. And the reality is you know, we have seen examples recently where we can very clearly tell that the security regime inside some of our prisons just isn't up to it. No, quite. Final question, David. Um, we were told as well the government's going to get rid of a lot of foreign prisoners currently being held in the system uh, and deport them. I'm not sure... Uh, given their history of deporting illegal migrants, what uh, success rate they're looking for. But could that make enough of a difference to create a few thousand spaces at least? Yeah, there's about 9,700 foreign offenders mm. inside British prisons. Um, certainly amongst the top 10 countries, five of them are European Union countries. I see no reason at all why significant numbers of foreign offenders can't be sent uh, certainly to those five countries, mm. pretty rapidly. So um, there is the potential here to make a significant difference and the government should do what they can very, very quickly on that. Absolutely right. Thank you very much indeed. David Spencer there from the Policy Exchange giving us his view uh, on all manner of things to do with the justice system and the prison system and not least uh, the place where uh, the Home Office has paid £15 million to house migrants, which isn't even ready for use. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app.
If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.